and welcome back to another episode of Tell Me a Story. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting for so long. Happy New Year. You know, one of the things that held me back, aside from selling my house and moving away from the town I lived in for five years, is or was um, the process of picking themes for an episode and then finding uh, pieces of work that really match that thought process. When I started this podcast, I thought I'd be releasing episodes something like once a week. And then that changed to once every two weeks. And now I think we're going to stick with once a month. That helps me keep the quality level up. And I found it easy to put out episodes a lot more quickly last year. And as it turns out, <laughs> it's not so easy all the time. Anyway, thank you so much for being patient with me. And let's get started with episode four of Tell Me a Story. Our theme today is voice and personality and how that manifests itself in a literary work using things like timing and vocabulary and choice of subject. We've got two poems and two stories today for you. So let's get started. We are starting out with a short story that comes to us from Nyack, New York, uh, from an author named Donna Lee Miele, read by Christian Brew. This one's called Imagine the Nighttime Sea. My husband taught our daughters to swim in the way he said he'd been taught. He waited until they were old enough to climb above our sight in the ipple trees and to run beyond the reach of our voices. This, he said, was when learning to swim became a matter of life or death. We were river people. He took them, first the eldest, then a year later the younger one, to the end of our slatted wooden walkway, where the river ran sluggish and deep. He tied a rope around her chest, picked her up laughing, told her to keep her mouth closed, and threw her in. He pulled her up gasping, made sure she hadn't sucked water, and when she was ready, he threw her in again. It didn't take long for either of them to swim, and as far as I knew... Neither became afraid of the water. The swimming lessons were, though, yet another reason for them to fear us. They came back from the river, slick-haired and exhilarated, but where they used to clamber into my husband's embrace and demand the commissary chocolates he brought home each Saturday, they began staying just out of his reach, the eldest, then a year later, the younger one. We both had punishing hands, my husband and I. I've slapped my daughter's mouths to warn them against the fruit they just plucked from the ground. My husband has thrashed them for rude speech. But with my other hand to replace the bad fruit, I would offer pan de coca 
and hot rice with a fresh egg steamed on top. And my husband, in place of rudeness, taught them all the hymns and love songs he once sang for me. We always told them that such lessons were given out of love, sometimes out of fear for their lives. I hope they believe it. I pray that I can continue to believe it myself. Oh, Lord, how young they appear as we leave the fires behind and they lean blank faces against the shoulders of my husband's fleeing guerrilla soldiers. We have succeeded in this moment of the war. Our guerrillas have driven back the occupying forces. Ours, I say, because my husband trained them and I fed, clothed and shielded them in the days leading up to the attack. The enemy has guerrillas of its own and any soldier, however well trained and supplied, can turn. Ours will not, we say, because there among them is the boy whose mother died of a fever and whose youngest sister was saved by my care. And there is his father, whose grain we have milled and always sold for a fair price. His rifle was granted to him through the force of my husband's reputation. He goes ahead to scout a path to the sea for tomorrow and sends word back through his son that the camp is secure. They will not be after us tonight, I tell my daughters. As we risk a little cooking fire and the day falls, I don't tell them my fears for tomorrow. They understand that their father has led an important victory. They are able to smile. I promise them a refuge by the sea, in a place too far for the enemy to send its scouts, with an aunt they've never met my husband's kinswoman, the cousin of a cousin so far removed that the war will never find them. They envision one of the divine maidens from the old stories, watching for them with eyes like the noonday sun. Caught up in the vision, I allow myself to lie outright only once. We'll leave in the morning, I say. They are able to sleep. My husband and I begin preparations at once. If we journey with the guerrillas to the refuge by the sea, it will not remain a refuge for long. We risk a last look at our daughters. The fires have gone out and it's really too dark to see anything. They are two small humps beside the scout's son, who is barely larger than a 50-kilo sack himself. A few steps into the jungle and they are gone from our sight, gone from our reach. If anything should happen to them, oh Lord, in my blindness and stupidity, let me be struck dead. Angels, dear, you guided me when I was far younger than my youngest daughter and had to make my way alone. God gave them the blessing of sisterhood, each with the other to rely upon. I learned to swim in the river on my own when I was younger than my youngest daughter. I learned to swim without a rope. The truth is, I've never swum in the sea. The truth is, I have never known God to barter fairly. B. 
Between my daughters and death, there has probably never been anything thicker than an ipple bough, not even thicker than the hemp fibre of a rope wound in haste during wartime. On the unmarked paths of the jungle, it's as dark as I imagine the nighttime sea must be. I don't expect to see any more clearly tomorrow. For me, what made that story special was the juxtaposition of this universal sense of parental love and protection, something really any of us can relate to. Uh, in terms of just wanting what's best for somebody and being willing to make tough decisions with their happiness as the main goal. But then contrasting that with the reaction many of you probably had to the way that the father taught his daughters how to swim. Um, you know, maybe that didn't sit well with you, and that's kind of the point. And then coupling that with this willingness to describe a situation that uh, is probably very foreign to people, maybe not so much anymore, but the idea of revolution and, you know, internal uh, military conflict and jungles and, you know, hiding from people, those decisions add up to a, a form of voice in my mind. It's the ability to look at a situation and say, what can I bring to it? What what can I say that hasn't been said? And I think that story was a great example of a narrative that feels both real, uh, but also strange. This next one is a poem that comes to us from Sydney, Australia. The writer is Ava Lansley. And this one's called Coffee by the Window, read by Hallie Mary McClure. I realized, at ten years old, my dad sips coffee cold and alone. Shadows from the garden's rose outside collect across his chest and... For a moment, I saw a coffin, and all so suddenly revealed to me my own mortality. I asked my father, what happens after we die? And he served only honesty. It goes blank, but I don't know why. I was petrified of that clean slate that would consume me, purify my state. A stark white empty to swallow my soul indefinitely. But I was not afraid of its permanency, but rather what it would feel like to exit this stage alone with the flowers of regret and memory. He asked me, Honey, are you scared to die? What might it feel like for all that I am to dissipate my layers of something to open up into nothing, and for me to learn in my last moment of living who I really am, who I really was, at the doors of eternity. He asked me, 
Honey, are you scared to die? I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. I mean, I could go on and on about poetry. I mean, I spent years as an undergrad studying poetry, and I did a thesis in poetry. And often enough, I find it hard to even put into words what what I hear and what I see and, and what any of it means to me. I mean, that's what poetry is, I guess. It's just one big secret all around. Um, you know, you get what you get and, uh, and that's it. It's, you can't even share it. You know, that, that, the, the epiphanies you get from poetry are very hard to share. But from, from a more removed perspective, I am always fascinated by the kind of moments that stick with you as a child or even as an adult. You know, when you, think about brain activity and just the way that we store memories. I mean, what's interesting is that most of it is not remembered. <laughs> I was just thinking about that with, with my own daughter, who's only seven right now. And, you know, there's something so pure about her life right now because she will not remember most of it. 99% of every day of every month of every year is not going to be directly accessible to her uh, as an adult, right? I mean, that's what we realize when we grow old, that all this stuff happened and we really only remember certain things, you know, things that hurt or things that felt good, um, moments of epiphany, which is what this poem is about. I guess what it does for me and what I think a lot of good poetry does is it allows me to add my own meaning to it. It's sort of an empty vessel in that sense. And the ability to do that in maybe 30 lines or 40 lines that's that's voice. That's important stuff. That's bringing a value to something that is unique to the author. And, and that's what I love about it. If you have signed up for my mailing list, you may have read something a few weeks back uh, where I discuss a little bit about what's been going on and the technical changes we just made but if you go all the way to the end of that message there's a thing i wrote about what i'm looking for when i'm reading through the submissions we get for this podcast and i mention something that i call voice uh, just a collection of small things that together really create a sense of personality and set the tone for the rest of the story. So this next one is a good example of an effective use of voice. Let's see what you think. It's called Helping Ruthie Die, written by Claude Clayton Smith out of Ohio. And this one's being read by Jonathan Pop. I wouldn't have had to help Ruthie die if Oscar hadn't wrecked the Merry Monza, although that crash, for the time being at least, had nothing to do with Ruthie at all. Eleanor had named her car the Merry Monza because of the way it zipped along. We bought it when she was pregnant with Oscar because her belly got in the way of my Nova stick shift. Oscar had just gotten his driver's license. Sixteen years later, when he wrecked it, running it into the ass end of a pickup, he turned his head to watch a group of undergraduates jogging by, then wham! His friend Alex, riding shotgun, had pointed the girls out, so the crash, I suppose, was his fault too. They were on their way to her house from his, on a mission having to do with a high school dance. 
It was a straight jaunt of less than a mile, so Alex hadn't buckled his seatbelt. By the time Oscar saw the pickup, his nose was already into the steering wheel. Alex's knee was in the glove box and the airbags had deflated. The other driver was uninjured. The jolt gave each boy a whiplash, and so the EMTs strapped them to wooden boards and immobilized their necks. The crowd that gathered included a university colleague, a voluntary auxiliary, who videotaped the procedure for training purposes. A photographer from The Town and Gown arrived as well, and the boys made the front page two days later. Ruthie was also a university colleague, and I wouldn't have had to help her die if Alex's father, yet another colleague, hadn't been in a rotary. We got acquainted in the ER as we awaited the results of our son's x-rays. The boys laid in adjoining beds, more concerned about the upcoming dance than their x-rays. Alex's knee suffered more damage than Oscar's nose, so a week later, when his father called to ask if he'd like to join the rotary, I felt obliged to accept. He taught in the law school, and I suppose I feared he might sue us. The Mary Monza, 17 years old, was a total loss, as Ruthie herself would be when stricken with cancer. But that didn't happen until I'd been in the Rotary for several years, retiring from both the university and the Rotary after Ruthie died. During my stint in the Rotary, during which I did a term as president, Ruthie's husband Ted, another Rotarian and university colleague, would die from a stomach ailment, setting the stage for me to help Ruthie meet her own end. Ruthie and Ted were in the art department. They had no children, having devoted their lives to their art. They considered their students, who loved them, as offspring. Ted was a talented watercolorist, and Ruthie painted portraits, although her main work was in abstract expressionism. Writhing Galactic Magma said a review of her work in an attempt to describe her entry in a juried exhibit where she took best of show. Ted was proud of her. He'd recently been admitted to the National Academy of Watercolorists, making Ruthie as proud of him as he was of her. Ruthie's parents had been flower children in the 60s, and their lingo had survived in their daughter. Far out and groovy were her favorite exclamations, expressions she alone could get away with, like the writhing galactic magma of her paintings. Ted wore bell-bottoms and broad lapels when they wed, Ruthie a granny dress, and the ceremony took place under an apple tree. When Ted died, the Rotary planted an apple tree in his memory outside the art department. His best watercolors featured apple trees in bloom. But I suppose, as Rotary president at the time, I should have consulted the physical plant. The university prided itself on the different trees that adorned the campus, each labeled with a plaque stating its name and taxonomy. The biology department had instituted this practice, helping local high school students like Oscar and Alex with a biology assignment their sophomore year, as they ran from tree to tree like kids on Halloween. But I'd consulted neither the physical plant nor the biology department, sparking a letter from the university president. In response, I argued that art department alumni had paid for the tree and accompanying plaque. For the record, both the genus and species of the apple tree are malus. Its class is Magnoliopsida, and its order is Rosales, making one wag in the rotary feel that the skinny tree we planted until it bore fruit might be mistaken for a malicious lopsided rosebush. Not long after Ted died, Ruthie contracted cancer, as if her grief had brought on the disease. Ruthie had a number of female friends in the university community, 
faculty members, staff members, and local soccer moms whose portraits she painted and to whom she gave private art lessons, although none of them could paint very well. Far out, I can imagine Ruthie saying in response to their efforts, groovy, but that wasn't the point. The point was that she had cultivated a coterie of feminists who felt empowered by her, who consulted her on everything from yoga to gluten-free recipes. Several women among them had survived breast cancer, and I could imagine their sadness when they learned that Ruthie herself was riddled with a particularly metastatic variety, which Ruthie acknowledged with stoic fortitude. The disease progressed. Then as Rotary president, I received a phone call from one of Ruthie's friends. They'd been taking turns driving Ruthie to a hospital in the state capital, since the local hospital, to which Oscar and Alex had been whizzed, lacked the necessary equipment, not to mention the expertise. It was a two-hour drive, weekly for chemotherapy, then radiation. But Ruthie's doctors, there'd been only one at first, had shifted her appointments to Wednesdays, which didn't fit the university or domestic schedules of Ruthie's acolytes. Could the Rotary help? After all, Ted had been a longtime member, a former president, in fact. Of course, I said, knowing I happened to be the only Rotary faculty member who didn't teach on Wednesdays. While those members not employed by the university were engaged in their banking, law offices, or local businesses. So off I went, with Ruthie riding shotgun, the only woman to occupy that spot in my ancient Nova since Eleanor had done so, pregnant with Oscar, in those days before the Mary Monza. My first trip went well, considering. Fortunately, Ruthie was talkative. I had no idea what to say to a woman I hardly knew who was dying of cancer. So I asked if she were painting. Of course, she snapped. No question about it. Painting was her life. Why stop now? So I asked about abstract expressionism. I mean, shouldn't a painting have to look like something? I was in the math department. Ruthie guffawed. Art was all about form and color, right? She explained that abstract expressionism had originated in New York several decades earlier. It was aimed at subjective emotion, while emphasizing the spontaneous act of creation. Hadn't I heard of Jackson Pollock? I had. Willem de Kooning? Only Willem Dafoe. Then Ruthie fell silent, as if she pondered her writhing galactic magma. But couldn't her writhing galactic magma, I wondered, applying what she just said about abstract impressionism, have been a subconscious expression of the cancer she'd been silently harboring? But I hesitated to ask. We arrived at the hospital in precisely two hours, and Ruthie registered at the desk in the lobby, handing me the voucher that assured free parking. This is helpful, she said. Sometimes the doctors are late or get called away. There were no such problems. Ruthie's two-hour treatment was on time. But when I returned home two hours later, after a six-hour road trip, Eleanor said that the hospital had just called. An attendant found my wallet in the men's room, where it must have slipped from my rear pocket in the stall. So off I went again, and four hours later I was back, making my day with Ruthie a ten-hour marathon excursion. But it could have been worse. Losing my wallet is my worst nightmare, and some good Samaritan had restored my faith in humanity. Meanwhile, I had no idea what role faith might play in Ruthie's mind, although a few of her friends had formed a prayer group. My second trip, a week later, proved routine as well, until Ruthie asked for a favor as we headed home.
Could we stop at that groovy supermarket that had just opened a few blocks from the hospital? She wanted to pick up a couple of things. Sure, I said. Only, if she didn't mind, I'd sit in the car and grade some math quizzes. I hadn't been able to concentrate on them during Ruthie's treatment. The cancer patients in the waiting room and all sorts of advanced decay had distressed me to the point of distraction. Far out, Ruthie said. And when I pulled into the parking lot of the new upscale supermarket, H&O Foods, healthy and organic, Ruthie sprung from the Nova. She was a slip of a woman, as slim as the paintbrushes she wielded at her easel, and obviously rejuvenated by the chemicals that had dripped into her body during the treatment. It was another hour before she returned, struggling with a shopping cart filled like Santa's, followed by a teenaged bagger pushing a second cart. Opening the trunk of the Nova, I helped the bagger unload the baskets. Canned goods, boxed goods, frozen goods, recipe books, a huge turkey and ham with no holiday in sight, several bottles of wine, four liters of Diet Coke, and a six-pack of Heineken. Distracted once again, I said nothing as we left the parking lot, realizing that I would have to unpack all that stuff at Ruthie's house. For the moment, however, I was more worried about getting caught in the rush hour traffic. So I was driving a bit faster than I should have, unaware that we were in a school zone, though the students from the local elementary school, as I argued with the police officer, had been let out half an hour ago. Doesn't matter, he said. He'd sped by me, lights flashing while pointing at the curb. Ruthie offered to pay the fine, $120, although I didn't show her the ticket. No way, I told her. I'm the driver, and the driver's responsible. What disturbed me more than the fine was what I'd discovered after I'd pulled into the driveway at Ruthie's ranch house on the outskirts of campus. The garage was jam-packed. She'd got out and raised the door by pushing a code into the electrical device on the frame. Somewhere amidst all these stacked boxes, hanging canvases, bicycles, rakes, lawnmowers, shovels, and piles of art magazines were two huge freezers, each already filled with steaks, turkeys, and hams. There was a car in that garage, too, beneath all of the stuff, although I didn't notice it until Ruthie led me through a maze of wooden crates to a door that opened into the kitchen. Thanks, she said. Please shut the garage door on the way out. The code is 1986, the year Ted and I married. Turn here, turn here, Ruthie said suddenly during my third week as her chauffeur. We were on the way home, just about to get on the state highway, when she suddenly got hungry and wanted to stop for something to eat. Mickey D's is fine, she'd said. She'd glimpsed the golden arches just short of the highway ramp, and so I swerved across two lanes of traffic into the parking lot. Will the drive-up do? I said, but Ruthie had unbuckled her seatbelt and was ready to get out. Want anything, she said? No, I didn't want anything, because I realized that her surprise request would put us into the teeth of the rush hour traffic. One of her doctors had been late, and I'd suddenly lost my appetite, which returned, of course, on the subsequent drive home as Ruthie indulged in french fries, a chocolate shake, and a Big Mac. I hate McDonald's. But we'd stop there occasionally on long road trips because Eleanor loves their french fries, only when they're hot, as they were now as Ruthie stuffed them into her mouth, after squirting a packet of ketchup across the dashboard. I'd always equated a McDonald's value meal with the subsequent burp that it always produces, tasting of cardboard and chocolate-flavored plastic air. Now I equate it with ketchup on the dashboard of my Nova. The following week... 
After her treatment was finished, Ruthie informed me that she needed a port inserted into her chest. They would do it next time. The skin of her arms, parchment thin, had become too brittle, her veins too battered for further treatment by needles. And so the subsequent Wednesday, she greeted me in the waiting room an hour later than usual. This groovy little port device, she explained, consisted of a short tube open to the air, which allowed her to get juiced, a new word in her medical vocabulary, without the pain of a nurse probing her arm with a needle. I agreed. The port was far out. Ruthie looked as if a book had been taped to her chest beneath her blouse. And speaking of books, could we stop at Barnes & Noble on the way home? Ruthie's bruised arms made it difficult to hold a paintbrush, so she thought she'd catch up on her reading. I brought no quizzes to grade, a hopeless enterprise under these circumstances, so I followed Ruthie into Barnes & Noble, where the arm basket I carried around for her up and down the aisles soon proved too heavy, so I abandoned it for a shopping cart of the sort she wielded at H&O Foods. Without so much as a second thought, Ruthie plucked books from shelves right and left, as if she was, in fact, shopping at H&O Foods. The genre didn't matter. Now don't tell anyone about this, she said, handing me a romance novel with a lurid cover of a full-breasted ingenue, her blouse half-ripped off. Then she stopped at the language section. Ever studied Latin, she asked. Three years in high school, in fact, I said, happy for the diverting conversation. Ruthie had never got to Cicero, whom I'd found boring, but hoped to read him now, and learned Portuguese while she was at it. So she added a few Rosetta Stone audio tapes to the basket, along with Italian for Beginners. Italian, of course, she said, is based on Latin. The bill came to $375, and Ruthie slapped down her American Express without blinking. I figured that Ted must have had left her well off, so why not take advantage of it? She always used American Express, she confessed, because of the frequent flyer miles. She'd never been to Hawaii, had I? But my negative reply, something to the effect that Hawaii had never been on our bucket list, was cut short by, well then. Home again, we entered through the front door this time, instead of the garage. Ruthie's books and tapes had been wedged into a large box, with which I struggled up the walk and into the foyer, where I found myself struck between columns of large boxes from UPS, one of which contained, according to the picture on its side, a microwave. Just put it down anywhere, Ruthie said, as I struggled by her into the living room, which was crowded with new furniture. The old furniture was now draped with bedsheets. Woo, that was exhausting, Ruthie said. See you next week. I showed myself out. During the ride to the hospital, a week or two later, Ruthie told me she was having trouble taking showers. It's a pain keeping that damn port dry, she said. One of my women has to help me from the tub into my jammies, then into bed. It's gotten so bad that I pee without knowing it. But Caroline's cool with it. The following Wednesday, it was obvious to me, by the way Ruthie crawled into the Nova, that her condition had seriously worsened. It's so bad, she admitted. I now shit without knowing it. TMI. I wanted to scream, but that expression was not yet in vogue. But apparently... Caroline was cool with the shitting as well. A week later, Ruthie was dead. Ruthie, like Ted, had been an only child. They had no living relatives. I know for a fact, after Ted died, 
the president of the university had approached Ruthie about donating their home, hers now, to the university, when the time came, of course, for a child development center. But the house went to Caroline, a cancer survivor and divorcee who lived in a trailer with two rambunctious teens. Caroline immediately mustered Ruthie's other disciples for a week of intense cleaning and sorting. They gave all the usable goods to area charities, the food to the food pantry, the books to the library, and the car, a late model Ford, as it turned out, to the high school driver's ed department. She then threw a party in her new house to celebrate Ruthie's life. There was much weeping, praying, loud music, and, so I heard, heavy drinking into the morning hours. But I wouldn't know. I wasn't invited. For that story, when we talk about voice, you know, right up front, you might be asking yourself some really logical questions. Things like, why are we talking about this? Where is this going? Why do we have all these details about the Rotary Club and you know, whatever else. And it becomes a lot to sift through, right? There's a lot of details about relationships and who's part of the Rotary and who is president when, and there comes a moment where it all adds up and you're saying to yourself, why, why am I hearing this? You know, what is this for? What is the point here? What I really liked about that piece was the way that it feels like it's starting out it's chaos and it's verbose and it's meandering but it totally works you know by the end of that story you understand the layers there is humor as a sort of defense mechanism but not too far underneath the surface there is vulnerability there's victimhood there's a deep sadness really coupled with a sense that Life is what we make of it, and if we don't find a way to make light of things, then you know they might just well knock us down. And that's another way of, of creating voice, of being really committed to, to your stylistic choices. Often enough, it takes a while for the small decisions that we make as an author with regard to voice, to accumulate and to add up to something that can really carry the story. So that's, that's an important lesson. We are going to finish up with a poem from a teacher. I think she's an English teacher in Frankfurt, Indiana. Her name is Elizabeth Sharber, and this one's called... God is an Atheist. Read by Christian Brew. And on the sixth day, man said, Let there be God, for it was not good for man to be alone. He threw his thoughts into the sky so he could be baptized by his own strength returning to him. Dawn breaks on the border of the middle of my life. All of a sudden, nothing has changed. The retirement agent, beige with charcoal eyes, 
points to the square I'll have when I'm 65. I wonder where our faces end and the tuna sandwiches begin. I almost yawn. It is cut off by a lack of oxygen, which is technically what started it. I count the hours to bed and think, I'm not looking forward to death. I imagine it's like the tomb of birth, big enough to hold wonder that won't fit into a question, like broken candlelight on the wide-arched ribs of a Christmas Eve service, before they fade in the hall lights left on for latecomers. What burdens does our long-lost father lay on a cold pillow in front of the night? Perhaps he starts on his back, looking up, and seeing nothing curls up on his side. That was episode four of Tell Me a Story. Brought to you by the Chill Filter Review. We'll be putting out one of these episodes about once a month for the rest of the year. Just want to say thanks for stopping by and for supporting independent artists. Weightless heart